and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, write a dissertation, uh, raise a small child, uh, probably not get a job, but try to get a job and survive the quarantine. Um, here I am back with returning guest Craig Johnson. Uh, welcome back, Craig. Thanks, Brendan. I think I'm the returningest guest. Uh, you don't be don't <laughs> you know that you're the returning guest when we talked about this offline you, you wanted to come on only so that you could defend your title as the returning guest it's true it's true it's true i hope nobody i hope nobody takes this uh, belt away from me my champion's belt uh, and we should also just at the at the top of the show say that uh, i know that lots of people really love craig's uh, appearances on this podcast and you can hear more craig where where can you hear more of you uh, so I am on Twitter at Hist of the Right, H-I-S-T-O-F, the Right, uh, and I have a podcast uh, called 15 Minutes of Fascism, which is a weekly news analysis and update podcast about the global rise of the radical right. comes out every Friday, uh, but this week I'm on Brendan's show instead. Are they Talk really about- 15 minutes? Uh, most of them are really 15 minutes. Uh, occasionally I need to get in a five minutes of fascism one, uh, if there's, you know, a major disruption in my life, uh, as there has been, you know, on occasion yeah. in the last <laughs> month or so. Yeah. So, so yes, for all of us, all of us feel this way. Um, great. So check it out. 15 minutes of fascism. It is the perfect length for a podcast. Uh, it's, it's just enough to do your dishes or take a walk around the block. Um, yeah, don't, so, don't give it your full attention. Absolutely. Don't give not. it your full attention. No, no. Uh, or, you know, listen to us on repeat as you as you sleep. Uh, it will yeah. it will provoke good dreams. Um, so today we're not we're, 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 we're going to be talking about um, the history of the present moment. Um, you know, we're friends and we talk about what's happening a lot. And uh, uh, we've been talking offline a bit about about right now. And I thought I thought it might be good to have you on the show and uh, have you talk a little bit about the history of, of now. Um, so I thought I might like just say like, Craig, like what about history can like teach us about what we're going through right now? Like maybe can we talk about some like past moments of quarantine? Like I know a little bit about like the history of quarantine. I know that like the, the, the word actually means mm-hmm. 40 and it's from the 40 days that ships were kept at sea during times of plague to make sure that the people on them didn't have the plague and spread them. But yeah, like what, 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 what do we know about quarantines throughout history that might shine some light on our quarantine right now? Like, I know that they didn't have podcasts back then. Yeah. They just had to like live in a medieval village and, and pray, or, or I don't know what people did for fun. <laughs> Read the Bible. I, well, no, people weren't reading the Bible back then because uh, it was in Latin and most of them were illiterate. Um, but that's a, I guess that's a sort of different, different conversation altogether about the history of medieval Christianity. Although one that I would absolutely love to have. Um, can I say <laughs> the show? Can I say absolutely fucking love to have? You can, you can swear. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, like Brendan said, we're both, uh, quasi professional historians, journeyman historians, something like that. Journeyman um, historians. And so we make money, but not enough to really live on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and we work, but yeah, it doesn't look like work necessarily all the time. Anyway, the point nobody is, really uh, cares about the product that we make. Yeah, <laughs> certainly not. In any case, you know, 
uh, ever since it became clear that this was going to be a global pandemic and, you know, a world historical event, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I and a lot of historians, including, you know, you and I, Brendan, have been thinking and talking a lot about, you know, like, oh, historical precedents and like, oh, let's go back and look at 1918-1919 flu, which is the, the clearest precedent, you know, the most recent modern global pandemic. Um, it's also coincidentally just about a hundred years ago, which is you know, oh, yeah. just one of those flukes of history. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, you know, there's articles and shit about that and like talking about how people quarantined back then and, you know, trying to, although most of this coverage ends up being, you know, telling people not to be like, quote, babies about quarantine and being like, well, back in 1919, they wore masks too. And so shut up. Um, yeah. It's However, don't be babies or or don't have parades. There's a lot yes. of uh, there's a lot of uh, don't have parades. There's a, there's there's this this one little fact that keeps on showing up that one of the reasons why Boston had a really high rate of death uh, in the the 1918 flu was that they uh, had a a, a uh, St. Patrick's Day parade. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't have parades. Stay also, inside. I would have to stay. Uh, that as a uh, as a native St. Louisan, I am pleased that possibly the only positive coverage of my hometown that I've seen in decades has been talking about their response to a flu pandemic a hundred years ago. Uh, there's actually been some good positive coverage about how St. Louis locked down pretty effectively and stopped the spread of the disease compared to other major metro areas uh, because at the time it was a major metro area. Um, anyway. I actually think that there's a lot of discourse about that. And, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have, you know, any insight on that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't study, um, you know, government responses to pandemics. What I do study is uh, xenophobia, nationalism, the right wing. And I think that that's where there are really interesting comparative cases. not just to the response to the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, um, but to what I do believe is going to entirely overshadow uh, the problems that this pandemic causes directly, uh, which is the coming recession or depression. Uh, okay, so for you, the, 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 the actual pandemic is in some ways small beans. The real story is the, the, the economic crisis that we are looking down our noses at right now. I do, yeah. I mean, um, if we think about the degree to which, I mean, so most, of the, most people who consume news uh, are thinking about the recession or the pandemic, the recession and the depression or depression, whatever it ends up being, uh, in terms of, you know, unemployment numbers in the United States. Yeah. Um, but that is just like one small facet of how this is going to play out on a global economic scale. Um, China, a country that has been growing economically pretty steadily for the last 30 years, uh, experienced one of its first real hiccups uh, at the beginning of this year. Uh, if the economies of the rest of the world uh, fail to recover very quickly, which they probably will fail to recover, um, then we're staring down an economic fallout really unlike any that has been seen on a global scale since the 1930s. Um, Mm. And that is going to have much bigger consequences, much more longer lasting consequences um, than the pandemic itself um, 
which you know isn't exactly a comforting thought, but uh, is I think very. I mean, explain why. Like, I I just right like when the pandemic's over, we're all just going to go back to work, right? Like, we're going to be able to flip the light switch back on and stop socially isolating and and. Well, it might take some time to ramp up the economy, but but I don't know. I I, I feel when, when people see, you know portend these big economic doom clouds on the horizon, mm-hmm. I I feel like they're over overblowing things. Like, why won't the world just recover? Yeah, well, I mean, the, there are several reasons that we know that that's not going to happen. Um, one of them is that there are no economic experts that believe that it will. Um, uh, most major economic experts are in acknowledgement of the fact that we are staring down a cliff face. Um, uh, we're talking about a global crisis of demand uh, as a result of massive unemployment and work stoppages. Um, people are talking about, you know, like the suspension of rent and mortgage payments. Um, if those are compensated for, that's potentially billions of finance, billions of dollars or euros or renminbi or whatever, a finance capital that's just gone. Um, I mean, these things aren't, you know, fictitious. They're not like made up. They're the grease that makes the economy work. Um, Without finance capital, uh, without massive investment, without tax revenue, without international trade, um, the economy just isn't going to be able to come back. Um, I mean, one one particularly obvious example is, you know, the airline industry, right? Like fuel is cheap right now uh, because there's no demand. Uh, the planes yeah. are all still there. The airports are all still there. Uh, the people who knew how to fly them, the people who knew how to run an airport, they're all still there. They still have those skills. All that shit is still there. But demand for air travel is not going to come back to the extent that it was there in the last... 20 or 30 years, potentially for another 20 or 30 years. And that's just, that's just millions or billions of dollars of capital, like, like, um, constant capital in the, in the Marxian sense, like the planes, the buildings, the equipment, variable capital, that is the human resources, humans with their skills and their ability to labor. Um, that's just going to be sitting idle investments that capitalism made in the economy that will not return and that will not be producing new value. Um, and that's just one industry. I mean, we're talking that in everything from software to wheat to beer to logging to haircuts to amusement parks. Um, it's everything. Well, I, I, uh, the, the thing that I think is really going to strike home to people how strange this new world is it will be food shortages. Yeah. Um, yeah. I keep on um, thinking about the fact that Wendy's ran out of hamburgers. If you think of America, if you think of, 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 of our image of America in your head, it is the place where you can get a hamburger. You can usually drive and get a hamburger wherever you are in America. And right now that promise is unfulfilled that Wendy's ran out of hamburgers. We're not going to get chicken nuggets. We're not, I mean, this, this sounds small, but I think that there's a lot of what makes up the texture of our everyday life that is just going to disappear. And we're going to, you know, we're going to long for, I, 
One of oh, the yeah. things that yeah. I think is going to be striking when we look back 10 years from now is I think that we're not going to get another Marvel movie. Like, I'm serious. Yeah. Like this is, we, we had this, this think of what is it, what, what is required to make uh, something like the Revenger, uh, the Avengers, uh, 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 the big Avengers flick that we had last year. That took 10 years of planning, 10 years of movies, each one that cost multiple millions of dollars that had to have a, a huge company plan out this, this, this gigantic roadmap and invest in it and say, we're going to make all of this investment to pay off 10 years from now. We are not going to be able to get a movie like that, at least, you know, until we have grandchildren. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that that as a metaphor is is a potentially useful one because, like, if we think about what capitalism is, it is a claim that it is possible for value for the economy to continuously roll out and expand. Um, and change. It is possible for the economy to grow and change perpetually. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And that that is what a functional economy does. Yeah. This kind of horrific massive contraction of the economy is not something that just like goes away it doesn't evaporate it's it's something that we will have to grow our way back into um it's not something that we yeah uh, you know to to return to the phrase that you used before we can't just turn the lights back on because there might not be coal in the power plant that supplies the electricity that turns on the lights there might not be people making the light bulbs anymore we might not have the money to pay the guy to flip the switch, right? Like all of these things are still there. They're still in the world. Uh, but that's not how capitalism works. It's not just raw inputs and outputs. It's a continuously rolling, expanding network of exchange, value production, accumulation, and like engorgement. Uh, in, in Marx's words, uh, capitalism is the only society where people can starve because there's too much food. But so this this the, this massive animal that you're talking about, that whose whose principle is to grow and to grow and to grow, it is for the first time in living memory shrinking. Yeah, first time in my living memory. Yeah. How, how does that connect to to what you said before about the right wing and and and, and xenophobia, like? Okay, so we're going to have an economic crisis. Great. We, okay. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, see how so that, that connects to right wing or left wing. It seems to me that it should provoke people to, I don't know, uh, get more government support, uh, right? Like to left wing ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like we can think about responses to major economic crises as uh, coming in three flavors, basically. Um, you, there is a liberal, like a lowercase l liberal response, uh, which is basically the response that the mainstream Democratic or Republican parties would have, uh, which is, you know, we'll stimulate the economy, we'll put, we'll put some more money in there, you know, we'll distribute it out unfairly, you know, capitalists, owners will get more, but other people will get some too. And like, we'll help businesses primarily and mostly the bigger ones, but also some of the smaller ones too. And we'll help the workers, but not a whole lot. And Bob, you know, like we'll, we'll we'll just we'll supply just enough lubrication to this machine to keep it going, right? There's there's uh, a technocratic response that's exactly. seeks to return response. to the status quo. Yeah, and and the assumption, the fundamental assumption is like 
hey, the machine works. It's just, you know, in trouble right now. Like, yeah. we don't really need to fundamentally change anything about this. And just to point out one element of, of that portrayal that you're, you, you made that I think is important is that part of returning to the status quo means that you are privileging the recovery of capitalist institutions over individuals, right? Exactly. You can see this in, I think that you're, you're modeling this on the response to the 2008 crisis where you had a lot of attention and money being pay, paid to making sure that the uh, uh, the banking institutions survived, while individual homeowners who might have been underwater on their mortgages or businesses that that that, that collapsed that were small were left to wither. This was portrayed at the time as like a, a tension between Main Street and Wall Street. Right. Exactly. Uh, whereas uh, I would argue that that is a constant tension in capitalism as a political economic system. And that, you know, yeah, if we think about this as the technocratic lowercase l liberal response, the mainstream response, this is more or less the one that we're seeing throughout the world. Uh, so there's, you know, some universal basic income, there's some mortgage and rent relief. Um, there's a modicum of, you know, social democracy, welfare programs. But most of the attention is paid to trying to revive the economy as it once was. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's it's like a you know a, a wider political strategy. It's the ethos of the Joe Biden campaign. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is fundamentally Joe Biden's thing. Yeah, is 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 like well, America was already great, right? Yeah. Um, we just need to go back to the way we always was, right? Anyway. Yeah. If we think about that as one of the potential flavors of the response to a major economic or political crisis, and I would argue that all economic crises are political crises, um, there are two alternatives, uh, broadly speaking, uh, one left wing and one right wing. Uh, a left wing response would be to say, hey, the economy wasn't working in the sense that it provided, in the sense that it specifically did not provide for the needs of the majority of the people in the world. The economy was already not working. This is an opportunity to build a new economy from the ashes of the old, right? This yeah. is a Marxist response. Um, I could get into that at length. Um, I'm not going to do that right now, partly because that's not my work, uh, and partly because I am more, I am not afraid of that. That's what I want. Um, yeah. I, I, I just, want, I just want to mention another. You said that this was a Marxist. Uh, 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 response, but I, I think it's more widely left, and I just want to point out another flavor of it, just just to to show that 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 a lot of the diverse interests on the left all have this kind of reformist attitude. Uh, one of the uh, 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 things that that uh, green people are saying is like, look. This is really awful, but it's an opportunity to actually make the changes in everyday life that are necessary to get over climate change, right? This is things, things are contracting, but it's but it's an opportunity to get people to eat less meat, to travel less. Like in some right. ways, all of the stuff that we're doing, I'm sure this will be a conspiracy theory in, in a year, or if it, if it's not already a year, it are is. the things that environmentalists suggest that we should do. Person in our personal lives to stop climate change. The fact that yeah. it's not actually doing a lot to uh, like affect 
CO2 emissions uh, says something about the politics of personal responsibility that a lot of the green people are pushing, but that's another podcast. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Response, I, I, would, I would love to get on and talk about the fallacy of the concept of degrowth, uh, if you'd ever have me. Um, <laughs> But um, I, yeah, I, I think I, environmentalism needs to be, you know, it's not something that should be about personal morality. That's my exactly. that's my own bugbear. But we're going to bracket that it, conversation. Tell me yeah, about the yeah, scary yeah, response. Yeah. Tell me about the rain. Right we'll talk about the differences between Marxian and non-Marxian socialism later. Uh, <laughs> Off-channel, cha- off maybe. Um, yeah. Anyway, the right-wing response is... Um, as the right-wing rhetoric on any issue has been uh, the dominant one in the United States currently. Um, This is in no small part due to the fact that our president uh, gained office uh, in coalition with the extreme right in a way that no U.S. presidential candidate has done in living memory. Um, But it's also because of the particular weakness of the left on a global scale, especially in the North and the West, you know, the, the metaphorical North and West, I mean. Um, so the United States, European Union, Japan. Um, the right-wing response to this economic crisis uh, much resembles its response to any other economic crisis, uh, which is effectively to blame the problem on an invisible internal enemy. Mm. Um, now we see this, uh, implicitly and explicitly, um, implicitly I'll get into later, but explicitly, like we see this in the form that like Donald Trump literally fucking tweets about COVID as an capital I invisible capital E enemy. Yeah. Um, well, if, if you read those tweets, it's, 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 it's not clear whether he's talking about COVID or exactly. about the betrayers in our midst. Exactly. There's a slippage. Yes. Um, that's the point, is that there is a conceptual slippage between the depiction of the pandemic itself, like the virus itself, and supposed internal political enemies of the right wing. Uh, The right wing historically has two main political enemies, uh, wherever it is. Uh, Its two main political enemies are, one, the left, and two, racial, cultural, or religious others. Uh, Usually, these people are others of all three kinds. Um, So an example would be the Ku Klux Klan uh, would, uh, back in the early 20th century, back in the 20s and 30s, uh, would talk about African-Americans as uh, using uh, metaphors of disease or uh, animalisticness um, to to present them as if they were inhuman or unclean or unsafe. Um, They also use these same terms to refer to Catholic people, uh, which is something that might sound bizarre and confusing today, but is a reflection of the fact that at this time, uh, Catholics were not necessarily white. Um, you get a certainly more, not wasps, and, and certainly not wasps. Um, and you get a more obvious example of this. Uh, so here we go, playing the Nazi card. Uh, you get a more obvious example of this in the case of Nazi Germany and fascism in general, um, in which uh, the Nazi Party used metaphors of disease, uh, contagion, infection. 
parasite, like all of these sort of like health metaphors uh, to refer to the relationship between Jews and Germany and on a broader scale, Jews and the world at large. Um, this, this, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is actually a really complicated concept. It's, it's how the right wing sees the world, right? The right wing believes that the world would function in this like happy-go-lucky, you know, fucking leave it to beaver kind of way if it weren't for invisible internal enemies that mess everything up, right? They, they weasel their way in and, work, and mess up with the internal workings of the economy and the society. In the 20th century, and especially in the global north and global west, um, one of the more common targets for this kind of uh, like parasitic language uh, is Jews, Jewish people. Uh, this is it's cosmopolitans, as, as we're yeah, called. It, exactly. Today, uh, this language is reflected uh, when people talk about globalists. Uh, also, ruthless cosmopolitans. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, like that's the concept here is that yeah. like, they're accusing a certain group of humans of having no home, of having no culture, of having no history, uh, of being, you know, an internal upsetter of the way that things should work. Um, as a result of the COVID pandemic um, and also as a result of decades of development on the right wing, uh, we're also seeing a, we're also seeing this kind of rhetoric used to describe uh, Chinese people and East Asians and Chinese Americans. Um, uh, the same sort of rhetoric of people as internal enemies uh, who need to be fought, recognized, called out, singled out, marked. Even um, there are discussions on the right, literally, of like you know, special ID cards and like you know, special programs and policies for people immigrating from East Asia um, and using the pandemic as a sort of springboard in order to get these things that they already wanted because they believe that the world would work, that they would be powerful, that they would have everything that they always wanted if it weren't for those meddling outsiders, effectively. And this pandemic is the perfect opportunity to capitalize on this like parasitic conspiratorial concept of how the world works. Um, let me, let me jump in because I, I have a slightly different read on, on what you're saying that mm -hmm. I, I think that I agree broadly with, with what you're saying. I just have a, 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 a different way to spin it, which is that I think that what we're seeing on the right is a debate about who belongs in the nation. Yeah, who's actually a citizen? Who's actually an American? Um, who's a real American? As the the nineteen forties fascists had it, who's the re like the the truest of the true Americans, and who is somehow not American? Um, you can see part of this debate in those electoral college uh, college maps or those county maps that show yeah. wide swaths of the country voting red, when we know that you know. The number of people who voted for Trump was less than the number of people who voted for Hillary Clinton. But the idea is, is that, that those red parts are somehow more authentic. Uh, exactly. We also see yeah. it in, in, in the privileging of the rural areas of the country as the heartland. There's something not exactly American about cities. There's something not about uh, exactly American about 
rootless cosmopolitans. And you can see it in the way that Donald Trump frames even the uh, the, 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 the rooting of aid in, in the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah. The, you could imagine that if he could do a county-by-county county, uh, intervention, which they're in fact doing, they yes. would supply more relief to counties that voted for Trump than that didn't. If you're a Trump voter, if you have allegiance to Trump, you are a real American. If not, you are a fake American. Why I think the nation really matters is that you can see it in... Um, it's not just parasites, it's the people who should be enslaved. It's the people who should be exploited. And the biggest example of this is, is not with Chinese discrimination, but, but, but discrimination of people from Central and South America who are also, you know, they, they were the biggest targets of, of Trump's racist attacks earlier uh, in his presidency, also called infections, also imagined as a contagion. Exactly. And exactly. right now, when we're discussing reopening meatpacking plants, you know, so that we can have our Wendy's hamburgers, the real th- reason why we wouldn't is that we care about the lives of, of, of people from Central and South America who work there. Exactly. Um, I think that's I mean, percent people who have COVID-19 are Hispanic. 99%. It's always been transparently clear that the people who are going to be put at the most risk uh, from the government's response to the pandemic, both its enforcement of shutdown rules and when those rules are eased, are going to be people of color, African-Americans and Latinos primarily. Yeah. Um, uh, this is uh, as a result of a number of factors, uh, decades or centuries of uh, economic exploitation and oppression, uh, making shelter in place difficult or impossible, um, or much harder uh, for people in those demographics as opposed to white people um, because of generations of class disparity. Um, Generations of class disparity also affecting uh, an increased participation in low-wage service work, the kind of work that cannot be done from home and that is, you know, quote, essential. Um, Meaning that when the economy opens up, it will be disproportionately people of color who are exposed to contagion, uh, which will disgustingly, for the right wing, prove their conspiratorial perception of non-white people as being diseased. Yeah. Um, Because they will be able to say, well, look, uh, these people are in fact suffering and dying at a disproportionate rate. and they won't care to think about the historical antecedents, the reasons for this. Uh, they'll blame them individually and blame them collectively. Uh, because as opposed, not, to, thinking about, yeah, as opposed to thinking about a historical reason that this might be happening. Yeah. They're um, not allowed to be part of the nation. They're not fit yes. to be part of the nation. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so this, this joining of the right-wing concept of belonging with the right-wing paranoia about disease and contagion exploded um, in the 1930s and 40s in pogroms, the Holocaust, and other genocidal maneuvers by the Nazis um, and other fascist groups. Um, I'm not predicting anything remotely like that, but there are people who are arguing that um, the way that various governments are treating reopening, quote, reopening the economy, uh, knowing that it will disproportionately affect people of color. Uh, so this is not just in the United States, but also Brazil, for example. 
yeah. um, to talk about that as a genocidal policy. And I think that there's real merit to that claim. Yeah. Okay. So we, we talked, we, we, that was the explicit uh, uh, way that this is going to f- affect the, the right When You started this out by saying that there was both an explicit and an implicit way. Let's talk about the implicit way. Yeah. So implicitly, uh, what this is going to enable the right wing to do is to argue for a lot of economic policies that they have always wanted. Mm. Um, this is going to be a real shot in the arm for uh, like like a like a booster shot, you know, like steroids, not uh, not the other kind of shot. Um, this is going to be a real aid to economic nationalists. Mm. Uh, they're going to be able to say, well, look. It was the globalization of the economy that led to this in the first place. Yeah. Um, it's going to be – this is connected well, to – the cosmopolitan elites in New York exactly. spread it to the rest of us. Exactly. I mean like like for one, that is literally the case uh, in, in a majority of the country. In a majority of countries, it was relatively elite people who are able to travel to Europe or East Asia on vacation or for work um, who have been spreading the disease initially. Um, but of course, it was also those people who are disproportionately able to access real and effective healthcare um, in order to treat the, the complications of the disease. Um, but what this means is that the right wing is going to be able to say, like, okay, hey, we've been complaining about, quote, China's rising power this whole time. And look, this is a perfect example. Um, this is also connected to uh, their paranoid conspiratorial idea that China somehow manufactured this disease. And by China, I mean like the Chinese government. Um, but because well, of the, 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 the stop COVID-19 act, yeah. uh, which it, it doesn't actually do what it says in the tin, it enables Americans who lost family members to COVID-19 to sue the Chinese government, exactly. which is a clear way. I mean, it, it's, you don't need a PhD to read that text. It says, this is not our fault, it's China's fault. Mm -hmm. If you need an enemy, it's them. Exactly. And so if we think about the various kinds of enemies um, that the right wing has, one of them is particular persons, right? Uh, Historically, back in the 40s, this was primarily focused on Jewish people, but also Roma or travelers, um, Slavs, depending on, you know, the particular variety of the right wing that you belong to, where you were from. Um, Today in the United States, this is, again, increasingly Jewish people, um, but also African-Americans, Latinos, East Asians. Um, But on a bigger scale, the right wing uses those people as scapegoats to attack uh, its fuzzier, more diffuse enemy, which is sort of finance capitalism, um, mm. globalization. Uh, uh, there are Marxian scholars who say that um, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. Uh, it's, a, it's a way to talk about problems in the economy that are real, that like the economy does not work for everybody. The economy is organized in a system of international exploitation and gain as opposed to providing people what they need. But the right wing claim is that that is a sort of like a puppetry scheme by a series of, you know, 
shadowy figures as opposed to being some sort of systemic outgrowth of how capitalism works. Well, you, uh, you mentioned you mentioned a uh, conspiratorial paranoia earlier, and I, I, I think that that one of the the differences in the right wings and the left wings analysis of structural issues like uh, uh, the inequalities of financial capitalism are that when you talk with left-wing people, often like the, the enemies are diffuse. They're, yeah. they're, I, I, I refer to it as sin. But for left-wingers, things like racism, sexism, and, 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 and uh, other structural inequalities are sins. They exist mm-hmm. for everybody, and everybody needs to do work to correct them, right? Yeah. Um, but for right-wingers, it's particular people who are the problem. There's an idea that, there, that, 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 that it was a plan. That there's there's a conscious action that's being ha- that, that's happening. There's the devil out there doing his work, and you can consciously fight him if you can identify a secret work, if you can reveal his. You know, it's 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 the conspiracies that that, that feed into uh, the um, QAnon people. The exactly. idea is that there's yeah. there is actually secret people out there who have a secret plan, and they're the reason why everything's going wrong. And if you identify exactly. them, and everything will be going right. And so this is why I would argue that this is one of the main reasons that when you see these like open up protests, um, that they have all these like conspiratorial ideas that like, oh, this is just a scheme to implement communism. What exactly they mean by communism? I have absolutely no idea. Um, Linking, you know, the Michigan governor's shelter in place laws to the Chinese communist party um, you know, complete nonsense like that, arguing that the virus was concocted in a laboratory in China when every epidemiologist and virologist everywhere agrees that it did not. It was a naturally occurring virus that leapt between um, car- between some animal carrier and human carriers, which is the way that many, you know, new viruses have entered uh, the human epidemiological world uh, in the last hundred years. That's just part of how viruses spread. Um, HIV being a prominent example here. Or even MERS. MERS MERS came from Yeah, MERS MERS is another example. SARS also. Well, SARS-1, you know, this is SARS-2. Yeah. And so the reason the, the broad reason that i'm worried about this pandemic and the economic downturn that is coming and you know just sort of like crashing over us like a wave um is that it is a perfect storm for the right wing's narrative about how the world works and how it doesn't work about whose fault it is that the world doesn't work and about what the remedies are um mm-hmm. the people who are the authors of a lot of contemporary right-wing rhetoric in the United States, uh, the main example being Steve Bannon, saw this immediately, like, like, like from day negative 50 of the pandemic in the United States. Steve Bannon was talking about this pandemic and its consequences for the United States government and economy in February um, because he's smart, because he's a good ideologue who knows how to push his shit, right? Um, other, even, even some of our minor figures, uh, like for example, Mike Cernovich, who's, who's an important figure in the quote, manoverse, you know, the, the male supremacist Twitter and Reddit universe, uh, 
Um, these people have been pushing this perception of the pandemic for months. Um, they have a relatively unified perspective that has a big historical antecedent um, in how fascism talked about the economic downturn of the 30s and also previous economic downturns in the 1870s and 90s. Um, they're ready. They have an ideology ready. Uh, they are armed. Uh, they have the presidency. Um, and the Democrats' response in the United States appears to be Joseph Biden, uh, which I do not think is going to really compel people uh, to change their minds. Um, well, they also, I mean, with we're recording this the day after uh, the Justice Department dropped all charges against Michael Flynn, and, yeah. and I was very concerned about this, not because I, I mean, I, I don't think that I think the dude probably did something wrong and should be punished. But what it clearly is, is it's a signal to everybody who's working in the Trump campaign this year that if you do something illegal and it helps President Trump get elected, you'll be off the hook. Yeah. You know, um, and I mean, like, I would argue that, you know, Trump and the United States is a is a clear example of the influence of the right wing uh, in the response to this pandemic and the growing influence of the right, but it's not the only one. Um, I mean, Hungary, an EU mm -hmm. member state, is not a democracy anymore because yeah. of this pandemic. Um, Prime Minister Viktor Orban is a dictator. He rules by decree. Elections are indefinitely suspended. It's the first EU member state to be a dictatorship. Um, it's, it's a massive historic event. Yeah. Um, in countries like, uh, for example, Germany, um, the increasing power of the AFD uh, resulted in the resignation of Angela Merkel's chosen successor. Uh, so now the person who is holding Germany together and in a sense holding the European, together, the European Union together um, has no successor uh, because of the increasing power of the right wing. Um, in so so I, just, I, I want to identify an enemy in this. Uh, I think in your in 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 the story that you're telling, the mm -hmm. reason why the right wing is ascendant is in part because liberalism, uh, smaller liberalism, is taking the oxygen away from leftism. It's it's the problem is the Joe Bidens of the world are splitting the vote in electoral democracies between lefties who, who actually can f name structural enemies and, and, and have a theory of change that could actually get people behind them, though that's being choked out by this, this status quo liberalism. Is that right? I, I mean, I think that that's partly the case in the United States, but because this is a global phenomenon, I, I, I don't think that there is an identifiable enemy um, I mean, what I study in, in my PhD is an international network of right-wing ideologues who coordinated ideological responses and also military physical responses to the power of the left in the 50s and 60s. Um, in the cases that I study, this resulted in a wave of dictatorships throughout Latin America and Iberia, um, and just the, just the literal murder of millions of leftists um, worldwide uh, in Latin America. We're talking about, you know, a few hundred thousand. Um, but elsewhere in the world, uh, we see similar things. 
uh, in the same period of time. Uh, the left was destroyed in the United States, um, not so bloodily, but sometimes with blood uh, at the same time. Uh, and by the left, you mean not just like left wingers, like we would call them today, people who are left of center. You mean like a no, particular I mean organized Marxist network. Left. Organized um, Marxist left. That's what I mean. So, and social. You, you probably include non, you know, socialists like me. I would, yes. I mean, sure. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Whatever. We said we weren't going to talk about that. Um, yeah. uh, I, mean, I mean, the capital L left. Yeah. Uh, like organized leftists. Um, we see their movements crushed uh, electorally, physically, legally, illegally uh, throughout the world, uh, from Indonesia to Japan to Germany to the United Kingdom to the United States to Latin America, everywhere. And so if you ask me, well, why is the right wing so important today? Why is it so powerful? Part of the reason is, uh, and you know, the reason I'm writing my dissertation is that the left started losing 50 years ago. But the, so, okay, I, I, I buy that. And also, I think that it jumps the 1970s to 2008 story of the rise of neoliberalism. Like the liberals are, we, we, we think of them as right now as feet of clay Joe Biden's mealy mouth people who, who are unable to, to really muster a coalition together, except for a defense of the status quo. But when neoliberalism came on the scene, it wasn't the status quo. This is true. Um, I mean, you're right in that, like, if we think about, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot of Gramsci, uh, who is a Marxist scholar who thought very seriously about how political coalitions are formed and how political insides and outsides, like enemies and friends, are determined, um, especially across ideological lines. You know, how do you unite the left broadly? How do you unite the right wing broadly? Uh, and yeah, if we think about the 1970s um, as a period of major economic rupture, like our current situation. It was a period of stagflation. There was huge yes. economic stagflation, uh, stagnation and economic uh, 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 inflation. Added to that, there was a energy crisis uh, because of the OPEC oil embargo. It was a bad yeah. time. All of which is to say the 1970s uh, were economically difficult uh, for people all over the world. And just like today, uh, if we think about, you know, the three potential flavors of economic response, um, there is one doubling down on the rules of capitalism, one that is a turn to the right and one that is a turn to the left. Uh, in the 1970s, a sort of doubling down on capitalism succeeded. Uh, and that's maybe a quick and dirty definition of neoliberalism. Don't tell anybody who actually studies it that that's what I said on this. Uh, I think that that's a little simplistic. But the point is that a sort of textbooky capitalist response won out as, a, as an economic, as a political project. And you're right that that coalition worked remarkably well for remarkably long all over the world, uh, from China to the United States to Europe, everywhere. It was pretty successful, um, with a few exceptions in places like Cuba. The, the, the argument by, by uh, Jakob Fagan is that is that what that did was it preserved elite power. Uh, it was it was it was like a class politics of the elites uniting the, the, the global elites together because what neoliberalism did was it protected elite uh, financial interests 
uh, from claims from 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 uh, you know nationalists, uh, from exactly. claims from from both the right and the left people who wanted to 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 uh, curtail the elites' uh, uh, buckets of stuff. Yeah. So the neoliberals successfully created a coalition in response to an economic crisis. Um, however, Grouchy and other Marxist scholars teach us, and other scholars who are Marxists too, uh, teach us that um, no coalition lasts forever, right? Eventually, they run out of steam. They encounter a situation in which their politics are inadequate. Um, 2008 was maybe the beginning of this. Uh, 2020 is falling straight off that cliff, right? The politics of neoliberalism is completely incapable of dealing with this problem um, because it apparently is, it, it's going to literally require uh, lifting millions of people out of poverty on a global scale, uh, providing effectively a global healthcare system uh, in order to prevent you know, the continued spread of a potentially, a potentially regularly mutating virus that kills millions of people simultaneously restarting the economy. That's just not something the neoliberalism is capable of doing. Why isn't the left alternative, why isn't that winning out anywhere? Like, well, you, 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 I think there's, there are several there's reasons. reasons. Just, is it because you, we're too interested in, in, in showing our ideological purity? Is it because... Uh, we are too complacent? Is it because our ideas are bad? Is it because too many of you guys read Marx? Well, it's definitely not the last one. Definitely too few people read Marx. Um, greatest scholar of the last 200 years. Um, I don't know. I don't have, I, I, I don't claim to know uh, why the left is relatively dysfunctional. Um, I think that part of it is a mistaken read about how the economy works. I think that m much of the left, especially in the United States, uh, is economistic, uh, that they believe that the economy is, you know, an economic thing rather than a political thing. Um, but that's maybe a little inside baseball. -y. Um, I think that the left has broadly failed to capture people's imagination about how much better the world could be or possibly could have been, you know, if you want to be pessimistic. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the right has always been, well, the right for the last 50 years has been better at dreaming big, uh, you know, making big promises, making big claims, uh, having clear enemies to fight. Uh, and also the right wing has an advantage in that it is mobilizing relatively privileged people as opposed to relatively underprivileged or oppressed people. Um, and so when the right wing mobilizes people who politicians and the economy uh, already pay relatively more attention to, it is relatively easier for them to get what they want. However, I do want to specify that as somebody who studies fascism and not just conservatism or the right in general, um, we are now entering a scenario worse than 2016 in terms of the danger that something truly monstrous could come uh, mm. from this economic disjuncture. Uh, the short version of how fascism comes about is that 
uh, fascists enter coalitions with conservatives when those conservatives are worried about their losing power. And fascists uh, can mobilize more people because they dream bigger, they, they promise more, uh, they're more organized, they're more willing to use dirty tactics like violence in order to get what they want. We are entering a time when mainstream conservatism, much like lowercase l liberalism, and also U.S. capital L liberalism, like Joe Biden's type of ideology or Obama's, um, is just patently incapable of dealing with the realities that we face today. And in a time when the right wing is more mobilized, bigger, gets more attention, and is organizing people who are relatively more privileged and also more armed, um, this is really the time of monsters, uh, to put it in Grouchy's words. Um, this is a time when monstrous ideologies can really take hold and move the world in ways that would have been actually inconceivable uh, only a few years before. Uh, so uh, if we want to stop that, we have to really try and really dedicate ourselves and think very, very hard. And I'm worried. Yeah. Well, let's, let's leave it on that sour note. Uh, Absolutely. Pessimism forever. Got to read your marks. Uh, according to Craig, that's one solution. Put Mark's underneath your bed. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Craig, uh, yet again. Um, and uh, I, do you have any more things to plug? Do you have anybody to thank? Um, well, I'd like to thank you, Brendan, uh, for having me on the podcast again. Um, and yeah, I'd like to thank those who are providing emotional and physical support to people who are suffering from this pandemic and uh, to know that the only way to get through these things is by working and coming together. So for those of you who are doing that, thank you. Yep. Yeah. Solidarity. Uh, okay. Thank, uh, thank you to uh, Duncan Barton for making our image. Thank you to Jonathan Lear for making our music. Thank you to everybody who likes the show on social media and shares us. Uh, Varsha uh, Venkat, uh, posted about our show and uh, got some people to listen. So did Kyle Jackson. Um, if you like the show, uh, do so yourself. Share it with your in-laws. It means a lot. Um, we will be back next week with another historian in the time of COVID. If you like hearing Craig's take on the world, check out his podcast and his Twitter. Um, it is always enlightening to hear from you. Okay, great. Uh, see you guys next week. Okay.